is Actually You Are a Real Runner with Jacqueline Riccio. Today on the podcast, I have Tressa. How are you doing today? I'm great, thank you. How are you? Good. So excited. We have an international traveler here on the podcast. <laughs> so where? let's start with that. Uh, where are you and where are you headed? Yeah, so right now I am sitting on my childhood bed on the west coast of Ireland in a lovely small town called Castlebar uh, and extremely lucky to be home and spending a couple of weeks uh, with my parents and one of my sisters who live locally, catching up with them. Um, but, you know, as you know, Jacqueline, I've obviously decided to sort of blow up my life, uh, quit the day job and going to spend from now basically through to Christmas traveling the world and, and getting opportunities and seeing things that maybe I haven't had the chance to up until now. That's awesome. So you haven't always been this traveler. So let's go back because yep. obviously something happened yep. <laughs> to make this all happen. So like, yep. what did you do before? It's so your health coach and life coach. What did you yep. do before all of that? Yeah, so I've actually spent the last 22 years of my life in banking, um, in finance. So I started, you know, in a, a pretty junior position in, oh God, back in 1996. I'm aging myself now um, in Ireland, in Dublin. And spent about seven years working there before I moved to London, spent about 10 years in London before going to New York and spent about the last five years in New York. And, you know, I've been very fortunate with the career I've had. I've worked hard, but I've had some amazing opportunities both to travel the world, to work with some phenomenal people. You know, sort of probably around the middle of last year, I got to a point in my life where I sort of thought about um, can I see myself doing this forever? Do I want to be in this high pressured environment? And, you know, how I describe to people is funny. About five years ago, I moved to New York and I moved there because in my head, I got stuck in a rotten Dublin, in London. I was in London. I was putting all my energy into work, not enough energy into me and self-care and my family and friends, etc. And, you know, I had this dumbass idea, as I call it, that if I just move locations, everything will be different. So got this great opportunity to move to New York for, for a, a promotion job, moved there, and about a year in realized I was the same dumbass just in a different city. But I was doing the exact same things. All my energy is going into work. So I decided actually at the time to get a life coach for myself. I felt I needed somebody to help guide me to change the priorities and figure out what the priorities were in my life. So I did that. And I was just so fascinated with the whole process about why it works, why it doesn't, how that coaching really helped me that I decided I want to go off and become a certified life coach. And Can I ask you a question? Yeah, why did you do life coach instead of, why did you not look to like a therapist? Like what's the difference? So, you know, for me with life coaching, coaching is more about, you know, here's where I am in my life and here's where I want to be. I just can't quite figure out how to get there. For me, therapy is more about processing trauma, trauma and, and previous experiences. So as a life coach, you know, we have to be very, very careful that when somebody comes to us, past experiences, of course, dictate how you behave now and in the future. So when that trauma comes up, we have to work, either refer somebody to a therapist or work in conjunction. You can do therapy and life coaching at the same time. But for me, there was no big trauma in my past. There was nothing, uh, there was a lot of self-limiting beliefs and there was a lot of ideas and stories that I told myself I needed to work through, but there was somebody that a great life coach could work me through with them. It wasn't somebody that needed, needed therapy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and to be honest, when I started that life coaching journey, I had no intention of ever doing it as a job. It was more because I was just fascinated with the psychology of what makes people successful, what makes certain people go after their goals and dreams and others not. And, you know, I spent nine months doing that, a lot of that in person. And it just, it changed who I was as a person. It changed how I related to people in my life. And, 
um, and how I thought about myself. Um, but, you know, I still didn't do anything with it. I was working with people on the side, but I was still working full time. And then last year I decided, you know what, I, like health and fitness and health and wellness is a passion of mine. I'll go off and do a separate one of that. But again, no intention at this point. This is all just for me to learn. And then last summer I went, you know, this is what I love doing. You know, I started working with clients on the side. The energy I got from that and the enthusiasm of working with people and how much it helped me, never mind them, just got me to this point of, you know, weighing up the pros and the cons of my current life, which is, you know, working in finance. Listen, you reap the rewards, good pay, great promotions, great opportunity to travel for work. But with that, that doesn't come easy, right? There's very long hours, lack of routine and structure with all the travel, high stress, high, um, high sort of toxic energy at times in, in those environments. And for me, and this was a personal decision that, that definitely doesn't work for everybody, I got to the point that, that weighing for a long time, the balance was still on wanting to be in the finance world. And, you know, some personal stuff happened. My mom got sick. That, that switched that. Um, I was struggling personally with just exhaustion and all of that energy. And that just made me make a decision that, you know, I'm okay with taking the scary leap of not having a steady income. I'm okay with but with that comes not having a nine to five. With that comes being able to take on clients that I choose to take on. With that comes being able to directly impact people more than I felt I could in my old role. Mm -hmm. That's huge. Being okay with like, I'm okay with yeah. this is the decision I'm making and I'm okay that I'm letting go of those yes. things. And I, you know, I'm lucky in that there is a safety net. You know, I've, I've been around this industry for a long time. I have a lot of good networks. I didn't, uh, I didn't blow my world up by quitting in a, in a negative way. I actually was on a 90-day notice period. I worked 75 of those. So my relationships are there that should I feel the need or should I change my mind at some point, those doors are always open. And I think if you do that approach in the right way, whatever career or lifestyle you're in today, those doors aren't open. I think we always think as human beings, this decision is finite and I can never go back. And that's just so not true. I thought the same when I moved to New York. I was like, if I hate it and it's a terrible place, I'll ring my boss in London and beg to come back. And you know, maybe some people see that as failure. To me, it's I would much rather try it and choose that I don't like it, and, but actually experience it versus let fear never let me take that opportunity. Have you always been like that? I am. A, uh, yes, I think so. I'm a bit of a fly by the seat of your pants type okay. of girl in some ways, which I don't think people would think about me knowing me. Um, you know, I'm not a big preparer. I, I trust that if I make a mistake, I can fix it. Yeah. Um, now, you know, I will caveat that by saying I don't have children. So making these decisions has a direct impact on me and my lifestyle and I can fix it. If I was responsible for other human beings, that would feel like there's a lot more to making that decision. Yeah. Um, but I, I do tend to go with my gut. If my gut is excited by something. And so, you know, when the opportunity came up to, to move to New York, it was like, you know, you can tell straight away that it's something you're interested in by that bubble of excitement and the enthusiasm and just the fact that you're like dying to tell somebody about this. And you can tell the opposite, right? When you're like, yeah, that doesn't, you know, do anything for me, then that's probably not the right opportunity for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're, so you're working this job, this high pressure job, long hours, mom gets sick. That was kind of like, whoa, life is mm -hmm. finite. Like, yeah. Something is that kind of 
And yeah, I mean, I, I think I was already there. That was the final push to say, no, I, I worked with a great boss at the time who gave me the flexibility to come back to Ireland. I spent 10 days back here. I was able to come back again at Christmas. So, you know, I didn't feel removed, but I felt like, you know, we all only have one life and you don't know how long it'll be, how short it'll be. But however, for me, it ends. I want to say I lived it. Mm -hmm. And I want to say that those things that, you know, you dream about going to sleep at night, they didn't just stay as dreams. They were things that I actually went after and said, so what? You know, everybody thinks, you know, I'll, I'll age myself again by saying I'm 41. But everybody thinks, you know, at 41, you should have a house. You should be married. You should have children, the conventional route. And you should have savings. And, and I do. But, you know, come January, maybe those savings will be dramatically depleted. But instead of looking at it that way, I went the other way and said, but you're 41. You've got another 20 or 30 years to work mm -hmm. to build back up those savings. Mm -hmm. And if that meant I had to go back to finance at some point, so be it versus saying, okay, I get four or five weeks holidays a year. And, you know, I spend a chunk of those coming home to Ireland to see family and friends. I'm not getting to experience. And I've always been a traveler, but it's a two week holiday. It's not a, a go and really see the world. Yeah. So that's huge. I think that that, cause we wait, well, okay, I'll travel when I'm retired, but it's like, you might not make it to then, or your body mm -hmm. might not be. Mm -hmm ready like you can yeah. so where are you going what are you doing yes yeah, so uh i've got a, a short trip in a couple of weeks where i'm going to croatia and slovenia uh with a friend of mine and then i've signed up to a tour group actually on my own to go to zimbabwe and botswana uh to do a safari which i have never done which i can't wait and then i come back here for about three weeks and then i am off basically for the rest of the year so about a four-month trip which you know, we've talked about before, it sort of scares me with the idea of, um, you know, I, I know where I'm going to be during those four months, but, you know, you're going to be in a different hotel all the time. You're going to be meeting different people. Uh, all of us, definitely me, I love to be a creature of habit and a creature of routine. And, you know, this is really going to th change that for me. And I'm going to have to find a way to live the life I want and be health and wellness and fitness at the forefront of my mind while not being able to go, well, I know what gym I go to and at what time I go and what machines I use. Um, and it, it just has reminded me even, you know, it's, it's three weeks now since I left New York. Um, I so quickly get back into a routine and habits and where I go and what I eat and how I work out. Um, I'm looking forward to, to finding a way through that, finding a way that I can have health and wellness at the forefront without routine. Mm -hmm. Yep. I have a lot of people that will ask me like, well, how did you figure this out? Like, how did you, um, you know, stop being so perfect with food and like getting, going to the other extreme and like eating everything tight? And it was like, it really was me being thrown into situations where I was like, like, I need to figure this out. Like when I left, I left uh, being a teacher and I was nannying for a family and I was like, I'm in a house with all of these foods that I don't buy. Yep. And I also have a girl I'm nannying that's like 12 years old and is watching yep. what I do with food. So there is no, like, I have to figure this out yep. because like I was thrown into these situations where at the time yep. like, I was like, Oh, this is so hard. But now it's like, <laughs> I am so thankful for those challenges because it forced me to figure these things out. So yep. like, as you're traveling, um, yep. we've kind of talked about intuitive eating and like yep. the ending dieting. So let's talk about yep. that. Where okay. had you been with food and exercise throughout? Oh, I I have been every um, every place I would say. So what I would say to people is I have never ever had an, a, a 
diagnosable eating disorder, but I have definitely had extreme disordered eating. And, you know, when I, I think now I said to a friend recently, you know, I'm going to try intuitive eating. And she was like, is that just regular eating? But as somebody who's come from yeah. the diet mentality, it's not regular eating, right? Because yeah. regular eating for us is, is restrictive. Yeah. So I actually had to take some time to introspectively look back at what has been my relationship with food for a long time. And I think as a child and, and even into, well into my teens, you know, I didn't think about food. It was something that my parents put in front of me at, you know, set times during the day. And it was always very healthy. I didn't see it that way. It was just what I got fed. But, you know, growing up in Ireland, it was a very unprocessed diet. We didn't eat out a lot. Um, it was a lot of chicken and vegetables and potatoes or meat and vegetables and potatoes with a, a limited number of treats. I also was extremely sporty. Like there's, you know, when you grow up in a smaller town, I think that's what you gravitate towards, you know, these activities. So, you know, I was one of those kids that in the summer it was baseball and tennis and track and field. And in the winter it was cross country and badminton. And what happened for me, I think, uh, where my bad relationship with food started was, was as soon as I left home. Because I left home without really weighing foods as good or bad or knowing anything about foods. I just knew what I had. But what I had were foods that somebody else put a lot of time and effort into. And all of a sudden, I had this lifestyle that I, A, I'd be very honest with people, I absolutely hate cooking. I am, you know, I will do anything around the house before cooking. So, you know, you ask me to scrub the toilet, do the laundry, no problem, but just please cook my dinner. Um, so I went from this very, what I would call healthy uh, lifestyle to sitting sedentary at a job for the first time in my life, obviously, and not having organized sports because all of a sudden you're an adult. People don't tell you to go to track and field and don't tell you to go to, to tennis. Um, and also to, for the first time, having to figure out what I'm going to eat. So I took the lazy options, ate a lot of processed food. Yeah. And, you know, when you're in your late teens, early 20s, even mid 20s to 30s, you can sort of get away with that. Um, and then, you know, late 20s, I definitely gained some weight. I, I wasn't as sporty as I had been. So that for me was when the dieting started to kick in. And it was everything from, you know, I did Weight Watchers at one point, um, never listened to anything they said, but just wanted the accountability of somebody weighing me in. So would go for, for that. Um, and then, but there was always an end date in sight, right? And that's the whole point with diets, whether it is Whole30s or Weight Watchers or, or anything else, there's normally an end sight. And I would get to that end sight and be happy with a number on the scale or, or how I looked. And for me, what changed, to be honest, was two things. At some point last year, and I think it was gradual, it wasn't one massive aha moment, um, my health and wellness became more important than the aesthetic, right? Dieting for me in the past had always been about how do I look? What do I weigh? It was never about are you healthy? And I think back to sort of my late 20s to early 30s when I was probably at the lightest I've ever been. Um, and I wasn't healthy. You know, I was massively restricting it the, during the week, probably over-exercising like most people who, who get to that extreme. And then binging at the weekends because I would be going out with friends. So there would be alcohol involved. There would be dinner out involved. There would be everything else. And, you know, even, even in my mid thirties, I would say up until the last year or so, my focus on food has still been about the aesthetic. And what changed was wanting to be the healthiest, best version of me. And that healthiest, best version might be five or 10 pounds heavier than what I consider my fighting weight. But it, you know, that, for the grand scheme of the quality of life I get out of that, it's so much better. So even up last summer, you laugh about this. I did a, you know, 50 days of no chocolate and I held myself accountable on Instagram. And 
I'm sure I don't have to tell you what happened after the 50 days ended. Um, so now, you know, in December, actually, I, for the first time ever, realized, you know, you're going to go traveling next year for seven, eight months. Um, and where I was at that point was tracking macros. So I had very strict, you know, I never cut out a food group. I always had carbs and proteins and fat, but I was tracking to a very specific macro number. Right. Which is why a lot of people go to macros. Food freedom. Food, food freedom. freedom. Within reason, because you still have numbers to yeah. hit. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, if you're one of those people who, for me, it was okay, you know, protein this, carbs that. I also started educating myself more about nutrition, right? And, and not just going with the mainstream, you shouldn't eat, veg you should eat more vegetables and never eat carbs. You can't, I'm an Irish woman, potatoes, I live and die by potatoes. So somebody telling me I'm not allowed to have potatoes is, mm. is hell on earth. Yeah. But I realized, you know, you're going to go traveling and you can't weigh your food. You can't add up how many carbs you're having. You can't be doing my fitness pal. And I literally went cold turkey in December. I went, I am just going to eat. And it has been a journey. Mm -hmm. And I'd be the first to say I'm not out the far side of that journey. I am still in the midst of that. So I described to people, you know, the pendulum at one point was the extreme left, which is deprivation and binging um, deprive yourself of, you know, carbs or chocolate, because I love chocolate. Deprive yourself of those for a month. And then you hit a certain number or a goal and then bang, switch over to the other extreme. Um, and, you know, the pendulum being on the left, it's now probably a little bit further to the right than I would like it to be. But the old me would have immediately said, oh, shit, excuse me for swearing. Oh, shit, I've seen a number on the scales that I don't like. I'm going to go the other extreme and go back over to the left. And I'm this time it's not easy. So, you know, to your point earlier about people asking, how do you get there? You have to live in this uncomfortable place for a significant period of time. I'm holding out faith and hope that that pendulum that's gone too far to the right will just balance its way back. So right now I'm still in a little bit of a, a scarcity mentality, which is, you know, I love Cadbury chocolate, which you don't get in the US or you don't get the, the Cadbury made version that often in the US. So now that I'm home, I'm still in that scarcity mentality of I must eat it all now because, you know, who knows about tomorrow? Who knows about tomorrow? And when you've been dieting, I'm sure you've done the same, which is, well, I have this chocolate left over on Sunday. I must eat it all because it needs to be gone before Monday because Monday I'm starting fresh. And that's sort of where I am today. But I also know there's getting to a point that my brain will start to logically, I know, but logic and emotion are two very different things. Mm. Logically, I know the chocolate is all there and I can choose to have it every day rationally though emotionally i haven't quite got there yet my brain's still like but i love it and i want it all now um versus have some now have some tomorrow have some later whatever but i'll get there and yes i'm probably seven or eight pounds heavier than i would like to be but i'm also able to go out and have dinner with my friends whenever i want to i'm also able to choose to have dessert any night i want to if i choose to have a drink or not have a drink it's not tied to was i good or was i bad is that food good or bad and not judging myself i'm sure you've been in that space where you step on the scales and a pound up or a pound down changes your entire mood for the day you know a pound down is woohoo we're doing great we'll keep it up pound up is like you're a miserable failure and how could you possibly do this and and taking no account into the fact that we have female bodies that over the cycle of an entire month could vary 5 pounds and those 5 pounds actually make no difference to how you look or what your clothes fit their body weight their their water weight their you know but to a woman, you, that one pound difference changes the outlook for your entire day, which when you say it that way, sounds absolutely ridiculous. But when you're living, it seems 100% rational and logical. 
That's, I'm so glad you said that. I'm reading a text right now that says like, we have these long-term goals yeah. and these ideals, but that's different than day-to-day. Like we, there are things yeah. that we know in yeah. our head, like, yep. but like day-to-day is completely different. A hundred percent. And I think, you know, let's be honest, as human beings, when we set ourselves a goal, whether it's lose five pounds, 10 pounds, 50 pounds, a hundred pounds, we want to do it as quick as possible. And we don't take into account the fact that, you know, for me, say the seven pounds I've, I've gained, I've gained them since December. Like that's an average of a pound a month. And when you think, you know, when I'm being nice to myself and kind to myself, which I would be to anybody else in my life, I go, you've just made one of the most monumental decisions of your life. You have packed up your entire life in New York. You have moved again. You, you know, have gone to a totally different career. You've opened yourself up to something that's quite scary. If you can't give yourself credit for that and the fact that you've gained seven pounds during it, like, who cares when I look back in 20 years and I think about this, this year of my life, that seven pounds is not what I'm going to be thinking about. It's the experiences I have. It's the people I meet. It's the joy I bring into my life. And most people who are living in that deprivation mode, there's limited joy because you don't allow joy in. You're not in a frame of mind that allows you joy unless you've achieved a goal. I can only be joyful if that dress fits. I can only be joyful if the scales tells me this. And Joy comes in so many ways. And, and I think I look back and I think I missed out on experiences that I wish I had participated in more because mm. I was that friend who wasn't going to have the chocolate cake that night. I was that friend. Whereas in the grand scheme of things, looking back now, it, it so didn't matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, and it's, I feel like it's the opposite of what's marketed to us because we always think that weight loss is good and weight gain is bad. And you see the picture of the sexy model and you're like, wow, she's on a yacht and she's having the time of her life. But honestly, let's go into her head and she's like, I'm not allowed to eat any of the food here. Yep. I can't drink yep. any of the alcohol that's here because I yep. have to fit into the swimsuit. Like that's not, we don't hear what's going on in her head. We just see it. She's sexy. Everyone loves her. Yep. You know, and a lot of what I do with life and the health coaching is working with people on body image and self-esteem. So, you know, when I think about health coaching for me, there's a couple of things I always say to people that keep me up at, light, uh, up at night. And, you know, that is things like the fact that we have a generation right now being born that for the first time ever are likely to have a shorter life expectancy than their parents. Now, you know, as long as records have been kept, every generation tends to have a longer life expectancy. And for those who disagree with that, and there are some, the argument is that, yes, we may continue to increase the life expectancy, but what's that quality of life? What are we looking at? So, you know, to your point, I don't think you cut out any foods, but what's changed for me is trying to make choices that are about my health and wellness and not about my weight. Mm-hmm. So when I look and I do that and I choose, I don't know, do I want pizza tonight or do I want, I don't know, a salad? Sometimes I'm going to go for one and sometimes I'm going to go for the other. And when you talk about your health and wellness, it's not just your physical health, it's your mental and emotional health. And if I'm the fittest person in the world, but I'm bloody miserable, that does not make me a well-rounded person. I'd rather be slightly less fit, but extremely happy and emotionally in a good place and mentally in a good place and have good relationships. Um, A lot of these restrictive diets also restrict you from building relationships because you have to close yourself off from society and you have to close yourself off from being sociable because can't be going out with your friends having a couple of drinks on a Saturday night if, you know, that's going to lead to two pounds weight gain on Sunday morning. Or in my case, if I have a couple of drinks, I'm probably going to go to McDonald's on my way home and, you know, or tomorrow morning um, to carb load after a couple of drinks. But 
you know, is the experience worth it and, and not um, delaying gratification or joy till a time when you deserve it because you weigh or look a certain way. Yeah. I'm glad you said that because there's a lot of talk about delaying gratification, which is a good thing. Like obviously, no, we don't need gratification all the time, but no one ever talks about when you are allowed to experience gratification. I see posts Mm -hmm. about it, delay gratification, delay. When do I get to experience the gratification? And no one ever told me. They were always like, once you get to your goal weight, then you can, are you serious? Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, my first question on that is, is your goal weight realistic for who and what you are? Yeah. So, you know, if my goal weight, I don't know, is 110 pounds, right? I'm never going to be 110 pounds just because of my physique and how I like to work out and how I like to eat. So in theory, I'm creating a goal weight that is never going to be achieved. So what, I delay gratification till I'm buried? Like, it just doesn't make sense to me. And I understand there's, you know, there's two trains of thought out there, right? You follow Instagram, you follow people on social media. There's the just grin and bear it. You have to suffer. You have to put yourself through pain. You have to do this. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't challenge yourself. We should all challenge ourselves. We should all do things that make us feel uncomfortable. We should try new things. I brought my mother to the swimming pool today. The woman is 73. She hasn't been in the pool probably in 60 years. But you know, challenge yourself, but don't get to the point that you're living a miserable existence. There's a big difference between delaying some gratification on a Wednesday night and saying, do you know what? I've been, you know, I'm feeling really good this week. I've been training well. I'm going to feel my body. I'm going to wait till Saturday night to have that dessert. Totally on board with that type of delayed gratification. But the delayed gratification of I can't go out and party with my friends or I can't go out and buy a new dress until I weigh that number on a scale, which could be six months from now. That's not a fun way to live your life. Yeah, that's huge. I especially see this now as you're like, I'm going to travel. Like, gratification like that is like that is like constant experience after experience so as you are traveling um I know you said you're going to kind of figure this out what do you kind of foresee happening with food and exercise during your travels not being able to get to the specific gym be able to have the exact clean foods um that you can prepare at home I think two things you know one is I know I feel better when I'm physically active. Um, but what that will have to change is the structure of that. So I do like to run. So, you know, running is a great one that you can bring anywhere in the world. Um, now, I do have some old injuries, which means I'm not one of those people who can run every single day. It, it just wears me down. But I also know that there are lots of good programs out there of 30-minute hit on the beach, you know, do some squats and press-ups in your bedroom, whatever it has to be. And I have to get okay with that because right now I'm like, Monday is squat day, Tuesday is back and bicep day, Wednesday is a run day, you know, um, and, and that's who I am and have been for a long time. So I'm, I'm, all I can say is I know I'll figure out a way. Um, I don't know exactly how it'll look. Uh, I was talking to a friend about it recently and I'm saying, you know, there's days where I'm going to be going on five hour hikes. I'm not, you know, we're good. I'm not doing it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, We're good. And there's days that maybe I'm just going to be traipsing around a city. So yeah, I will try and purposely hold myself accountable a little bit to get up a little bit early and maybe get a run in that morning. Um, but I'm also a big proponent of vitamin N, which I call vitamin nature and just getting time outdoors. You know, a lot of my workouts up till now have always been gym living in New York, vitamin N is, is, is a rarity. Um, yes, maybe in central park, but there's a million other people trying to, to get in your way. Um, so I think that will be it. I think the food, that was where I met the switch this year of 
if my food choices are only about aesthetics, I am not going to make good food choices on a traveling. If my food choices are about my health and wellness and how I feel, I am more likely to go into a restaurant and say, okay, I'm having the chocolate cake for dessert, but I'm also going to have the vegetable stir fry for my main course and getting that balance. Balance for me is something I've always struggled with. I've always been an all or nothing type of person, personality with work, with working out, with fitness. Um, and, and I don't want to be that way anymore because that's a hard expectation to live up to for yourself all the time. That's, that is the huge thing too. I think that we see that mirror of, yeah. well, you went, you were that A++ student, mm-hmm. promotion, 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 like you go all. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's, yeah, that makes sense. Like that's what you did with food as well. However, you know, in the, in the coaching world, you sort of say how you do one thing is how you do everything. Right. And you know, how you do one thing could be as that extreme, you know, sort of all or nothing. It could be, you know, you, you don't go all in, you're fearful, you know, whatever those emotions are, they probably show up in more than one area of your life. They're not going to just show up in your career. But you know, when I talk to friends about it, I, I found the career part of my life pretty easy. I found the personal part of my life much harder, the you know, health and wellness and the looking after myself and, and the building relationships because I'm actually quite shy around people that I don't know. Whereas I have friends who are very fearful about the work side of their life, but in their personal lives, that's where they are full of confidence and, and can get up and go and have never had you know, issues with food or, you know, have always intuitive eating. That's just the norm for them. So I think we're all built and we have different experiences that lead us down one path or the other. Mm-hmm. And no one is right or wrong, right? It's just your experience. You know, somebody asked me recently, given that I now want to go, obviously I've moved into the health and wellness space. Did I regret my time in banking? I said, God, no. I mean, I wouldn't be who I am. I wouldn't have had the opportunity to leave Ireland or work in London or, and I wouldn't have learned the skills. You know, I work predominantly with women in the corporate space in America who, let's be honest, get beaten down and told they must behave a certain way and, you know, take on a lot of, I would call masculine traits to fit into an environment because you have to, to fit into that environment and be successful in that environment. I work with those women to sort of figure out their mindset. You know, what are their limiting self-beliefs? How can they change those? What, what is true joy to them? And, and how do you have that in your life? Because, you know, you'll say to somebody, what's true joy? And they'll say, spending time with my family. And then you break down their week and you go, well, you do that for an hour a week and you spend 80 at work. You know, how do we find that? And how do we learn as women to set boundaries, learn to say no in a way that is not detrimental to your career? Because it's very easy for an outsider to say, just say no. And we all know in the corporate America space, that's easier said than done. Um, But how do you get that, that you're living the life that you want to be living and being successful in sort of the career that you've chosen as well? Mm -hmm. So you talk about uh, self-limiting beliefs. What are some of the things that when you talk with women, you hear a lot of? Oh, God. Um, So a couple of things I would say, uh, self-esteem and uh, the imposter syndrome are two that just repeat and repeat. And and by the imposter syndrome, I mean, you'll, you'll meet these women who are ultra successful at whatever career they've chosen. And in their head, they're going, oh, I'm just waiting for the day that people find out I'm not good enough for this, or, you know, that I don't know this as well as I think I do. And there's a lot of research out there that shows, you know, say you post a job and you say, these are 25 criteria you must have to apply. And a guy will look at that and go, I can do five and the other 20 I can learn. I'm putting my hat, I'm throwing my hat in the ring, right? I might get it, but I'm willing to throw my hat. Women go, oh, I can do 22, but I better not apply because there's three I don't know how to do. Yeah. And, you know, having the, the wherewithal to say, 
I trust myself that yes, there's going to be jobs. I've had jobs in my career that I probably started a year earlier than was ideal. But you figured it out. I had a tough year, but I figured it out. And I've also had times where I didn't get the promotion I wanted and I've been disappointed. But building up, I, I feel today that with that imposter syndrome and with that sort of self-esteem issues comes a lack of resilience. And knowing, you know, if you get a crappy piece of feedback, I think I was very lucky. Earlier in my career, I had a boss who, who actually really I enjoyed working with. I think she really enjoyed working with me. It's 20 years later and we still keep in touch. But she critiqued pretty much every single thing I did. And, you know, looking back at the time, I, I think I felt like, God, I can never do anything right. But, you know, she still got me my promotions. She still was a strong advocate and sponsor for me. So I came out the other end going, I haven't built that resilience. And then I also, having done sport, I won, I lost, I, you know, I came back from it. I feel like some of our women today are missing that resilience. And, and when they do get knocked back for the first time in their career, are finding it hard to find a way to not take that personally and to be able to bounce back and go, yeah, that was a crappy situation. And did it feel good? Hell no. That doesn't mean that I'm a failure. It means I failed at an activity. I failed at that specific thing. I lived through it. I learned from it. And tomorrow I'm going to be able to kick ass on it. But, you know, you, you have to build that resilience or otherwise I think the world that we live in today will just kick you while you're down if you don't get yourself back up again. Mm -hmm. I find that, you know, as I moved into the coaching world, the entrepreneur world, that there is a lot of talk about failure and that failure is okay and it's not the opposite of success and that you that happens a ton on your way to success. Um, but that wasn't something I learned until later in, in my adult life. And as someone that worked in public schools, like in kindergarten, um, I think that there was sometimes like I knew that for my kids, but it wasn't like a like a yeah. trait that I taught my children yeah. and I taught my students. And like yeah. one of those, like if I could go back, I would have wished. So like I'm curious, yeah. growing up in the schools in Ireland, did you feel like that or like in the sports, like when they yeah. talked about failure and success, what was kind of the message you heard growing up around those things? Yeah. So, you know, as I said, I did a lot of, I was lucky at some sports. I'm, I'm naturally sporty, right? So there were certain sports I took to and others that I was miserable at, but I was always willing to give it a go. And if I didn't like it, I wouldn't go back. But I think, you know, there was no um, insulation from losing, I think was the biggest thing. So if you lost, somebody went, you lost, right? There was no sort of what we would call molly coddling you around that. Um, but it also wasn't the end of the world. It was like, well, that's this week's race. This week's race has absolutely nothing to do with next week's race or the week after its race or the week after that. Whereas I think today, sometimes we try to insulate our children from a lot of pain. And obviously not being a parent, I, I wouldn't advocate for parenting a child one way or the other, but I see one extreme or the other. I see um, sometimes parents talking to me about, you know, wanting to push their kids so hard and everything has to be perfect to others who are like, I will insulate them from the pain of ever failing. And the problem is, you know, I, I, in past life, I've done a lot of interviews for, you know, graduate students joining our organizations and stuff. And, you know, a lot of those people coming into finance have never failed in their life. They're 22, 23 years of age at this point. They've never had a disappointment. And I know no matter how amazing they are, they are going to have disappointments once they get into the finance world or other areas of corporate America. So giving them the exposure and making them realize that failing at a thing does not define who you are. Getting back up defines who you are. 
Um, and I, I think, you know, I work specifically with women just because that's my passion. And I feel I can advocate more and, and bring more experience and self-experience to that space. But I also work with an organization or have done in New York called Girls on the Run. And this is a, an amazing organization, you know, who are like, I don't want to work with women when they're 22 and they're already in the workplace. How do you work with women when they're seven, eight, 10 and give them that skill set? And what they're advocating for is A, educating children, girls, young girls through sport, because you teach them then about, they do a 12 week program and they teach them about self-esteem. They teach them about body image. They teach them about bullying and how to deal with bullying, but they also teach them about food and healthy food choices, but it's never in a, this is good or this is bad. It's just, here are some choices that you can make. And I think the more we can work with young women and girls before they ever get into the workforce, the more we're giving them the skill set to be successful in the workforce before they ever get there. Mm -hmm. You know what's so huge? I love Girls on the Run um, as well. I use uh, the last marathon I did, Raise With Them. There's an amazing organization. It was at the school I was at when um, I taught. And I think what you said too about the, here's how to eat healthy. Like let's, all of the shit that we deal with in our 20s, 30s and 40s, let's, let's teach them. Like, cause no one ever taught me how to eat healthy. Like no one ever taught me these things. These, these are the things that are going to come up when you're in college, after yes. college. Like yep. the actual like real life stuff, the yep. life skills. Like, well, you know, whether it's about healthy eating and this is likely gone off track, but, you know, we teach kids algebra, fine. But if you're not going into sciences and math, you're probably not using algebra again. But do we teach children how to budget for their finances, uh, you know, for themselves when they're out of college or, you know, first time setting up home? Do we teach them how to cook? Uh, do we teach them how to, you know, I was, we had, we had home ec. I don't know. I assume they probably do it in the US, but home economics when we were in secondary school. So I was probably like, 13, 14, and we learned to sew, and we learned to do some baking, and we learned to do some cooking. Um, we learned how to budget a house. We, you know, so I think we are setting our kids up for this amazing education, but not all of it on the practical side of things. Um, and I think that's where you know, parents, aunts, uncles, godparents, you name it, but kids, people in the periphery of children's lives can really help educate them on that stuff as well to, to set them up for success. Yeah. Um, and, and let them know that, you know, failure is not the be all and end all. If you don't fail in your life, um, have you ever taken a risk? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's huge. I love that. Yeah. So I'm curious, what uh, books have really changed your life that you're like, people should read these books? They yep. are amazing. So, oh God, good question. Um, one I would say is better than before, um, which is all about sort of creating habits and creating routines in your life. And the reason it really worked for me was, again, this whole all or nothing mentality. So the book teaches you that every little thing is better than before. So even if I don't eat perfectly today, if I made some better choices than I made yesterday, or even if I, you know, you talked before about running and I've always caveated when I've said to people, I'm a runner. I've always said, oh, I run, but I'm really slow or, oh, but I only do like three or four miles or, oh, you know, and you know, you made a great point, which is if you run, you're a runner. End of discussion. It doesn't matter if that's at four mile an hour pace or 10 mile an hour pace for three miles or a marathon, you're a runner. And that was what this book taught me that, you know, if I run a mile today, I don't need to run four tomorrow. I need to run 1.01 and then I need to run 1.02. It also taught me some practical stuff. So I used to not be a morning person. Um, I used to do my workouts after work. 
something would always come up in the day that made that difficult or all of a sudden it's eight or nine o'clock at night. So I was like, I want to transition to be a morning workout person, but how do I do that? And like I would guess 90% of the population, my alarm clock was my phone. So my phone would go off and I would then check Instagram, maybe Facebook. And all of a sudden I've, you know, 30 minutes has gone by and now I've got a 30 minute place for a workout versus the hour I should have had. So they were like, well, if you have complaints like this, then you set yourself up for success. So I bought an alarm clock. I no longer allow my phone into my bedroom. My phone stays in the living room. And the alarm clock, I have to physically touch the floor and walk three steps to get to it. So I'm not saying that I, there aren't mornings I hit snooze or I reset it, but it's a more conscious decision versus just leaning over and hitting it and, and shutting it off. Um, so it definitely helped. I mean, I would say take it with a pinch of salt in that some of it is written by somebody who's maybe in a financial place in their life that they can create more space for some of these things. But if you ignore that and you read the underlying principles, I, I think that was um, a really good one. And then the other one is the five love languages. So I, you know, for me, that was life changing. Mm -hmm. um, all of my friends in New York have copies of that because I give it to them all for birthday presents and Christmas presents and everything else. Um, and what, you know, I look back at relationships I had in my twenties and thirties and realized that I didn't, I didn't understand enough about my own emotions. And I definitely was not in a place that I could communicate what I needed from people and what I was feeling emotionally. And, and that's just part of who I am. I'm not very in tune with my emotions. So I had to work on that. Um, but the five love languages made me realize that, you know, in past relationships, maybe where somebody wasn't giving me what I needed was not because they were purposely choosing not to give me what I needed. They communicated their love language in a very different way. So that changed not only my um, sort of romantic relationships, but also my broader family relationships. You know, I realized that I'm not a great person at saying I love you. Um, I used to, my mom used to ring me and say, I love you. And I'd say, thanks, I know. And <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, but, you know, I changed that because I realized that was her love language. Yeah. My love language is uh, quality time and physical touch. So I wasn't very good at verbalizing it, but there's people in my life who need to hear me verbalize it. So I've made a concerted effort that I choose to, to do that for them. Yeah, I love so that. So they're who I love. That one's huge. Um, learning how to receive someone else's love language and then teaching them how to receive the thing yes. that like, I don't know how many times I would like do, um, what's mine? Uh, tasks. Oh crap. I can't Active service. Active I would service. do things for my husband and I'd be like, why, like, why doesn't he notice this? Yep. And it was like, well, that's not his love language. His love language is yep. physical touch where I was like, don't touch me. And yeah. now I'm not receiving that. And so it's like, yeah. huh, why are we fighting all the time? Yeah. And, you know, you think back, I look back at relationships I've had, and, and I think had I known some of this stuff at an earlier age, um, I would have dealt with, I'm not saying the relationships I had would have been any different in the outcome, but I would have dealt with the situations differently. And I would have maybe had the, the skills and the words to be able to communicate what I needed and ask for what I needed versus I think there's this assumption as women, you know, when we grow up watching, you know, Disney and everything else that, you know, your significant other or the right person, it will just be easy and they will just know what you need and you will never have to articulate it because they'll just know you so well. And, and that's a myth, you know, any relationship you have that is worthwhile involves a lot of communication um, and a lot of work, but the benefit of that work is worth it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's huge. And I, I would say that with food too, right? Like it takes time to build that relationship with food, but it's worth the work, any relationship. 
hundred percent. And you know, I'm the first to say I haven't got to yeah. the perfect relationship with food, right? For me, it, it it is right now an ongoing journey. Um, I'm probably going to go and eat some calories tonight, and I'm not going to feel bad about it. Um, but I'm also going to go to the gym, right? And I'm also going to go outside and have a walk with the dog, and I'm also going to. So that for me is balance. Like yeah. the the other extreme is I only eat vegetables, and I work out three hours a day, and I don't I'm a miserable person to be around mm -hmm. and I'm not saying that's miserable for everybody there's some people that are the happiest most joyful people who that is their lifestyle but I think that's it it's figuring out you know the, the biggest message I would have for people is figure out your own shit do not look at Instagram or Facebook and say that person has the life I want and therefore I must eat and exercise and do whatever the way they do you know I tried to go vegetarian I still I'm very focused on plant-based, but my body kept telling me I need something else. Now, I didn't know what it was, but it needed something more. Do I choose to eat more plant-based as much as I can? Definitely. But that works for me. There's other people who are training who need, want and need animal protein. There's other people who want paleo. I don't care, but try them yourself. Don't just listen to somebody else's feedback. Figure out what works to you. I think one of the things we've lost the ability to is listening to our own body. So we have a meal and we pay no attention. The first thing I, I say to clients is let's do a four five day experiment and have different meal sources. You know, have a meal that is a meat-based protein, have a meal that's a plant-based protein, have a meal that has no protein. Tell me how you feel immediately after, an hour afterwards, two hours after the next day, because different bodies process different uh, macronutrients and micronutrients differently and need more or less of them depending on their lifestyle. So don't assume that somebody else telling you is, is what's going to work for you. Mm -hmm. That's a fun experiment too, to, because I don't think yeah. that we ever notice. We're just like, well, just give me the meal plan. Just give me the, yeah, meal, give me the meal plan. And then I'll tell you if it works based on what the number on the scale tells me. I won't tell you whether it, uh, I physically or mentally or emotionally feel better or worse. It's, it's successful if the number on the scales improves. Mm -hmm. And that's not success. Success is my skin looks better. I'm sleeping better at night. I've got more energy to be with my family and friends and children. I am much more of a positive person, whatever it might be. You know, it took me a lot of over and back to learn. Like, so for me, dairy, for example, um, I'll have a skin outbreak if I eat too much dairy. Uh, but it took me uh, 40 years, basically, to figure that out. Like, what is the thing that triggers this? Because I never paid attention to how I felt or how my body reacted to different mm -hmm. food sources. Yeah. That's and true. that doesn't mean I don't eat cheese or chocolate, by the way. It just means I don't eat them, you know, constantly. Yeah. yeah, right. I love that. All right, so if people want to find you and connect with you, where are the best spots? Yeah, so right now the best spot is definitely Instagram. Um, I sort of use Instagram, even before I started health coaching, as my own sort of health journey where I blog, mini blog about uh, what I'm going through and the messages or, or the self-beliefs I've figured out and learned through and what my challenges are, and there's still many of those. Um, so that's definitely the best way. I'm under Trasa Fitzgibbon. Um, and can't wait to connect with more people and, and hear other people's stories. Everybody has such different experiences, these sort of their relationship with food and health and wellness that it's fascinating to me to, to figure that out. Yeah. I'm really excited to see as you travel and just kind of follow what you're doing. Um, I think that it was so powerful for me and to be able to see how you do it and how you do it for you will be so amazing to see too. Like, yeah. Because again, my way is not the right way. It was the right way for me. Your way, but like we can steal things and like, okay, cool. I'm going to try that out. Yep. Like that. And that's it. I think, you know, 
I, I think about um, managers I've had in the past in my life and, you know, there's certain bits you go, oh, I love how they do that. I definitely want to steal that. I'm going to, you know, that was a great way to present that or to talk to yeah. somebody about performance. You also met people who you went, hell no, I will never do that. I never want to be perceived that way. It's the same with food and exercise. You know, there's no one person out there who has the script for you. Mm. Only you do. But I can steal and go, oh, Jacqueline, I like how you dealt with that situation. Or, you know, I even emailed you last week or Instagrammed you. I was like, that food looked amazing. I want that recipe you know what is that? <laughs> Send yeah. me that and I think you know Instagram as much as we might give out about social media and I do have some concerns about social media not helping people's self-esteem because remember you're looking at the highlight reels of somebody's life yeah. versus their day-to-day -day life but there definitely is so much more accessibility to information maybe it's the people I choose to follow but I see a lot more people getting into that moderation space into that balance space into you don't need to be in the gym four hours. Um, but what I'd love to see is, I feel it's women in their 30s and 40s that are learning those lessons. How amazing would it be if women were learning them in their teens and 20s and not going through what we've gone through? Um, that would be so helpful. Mm. Yeah. So many things open up, so many like just opportunities that would open up. Yes, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I will have a link, uh, a link to your Instagram so people can connect with you. That's so great. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I will definitely keep you posted. I want to hear your journey as well. Lessons learned are, are even better when shared. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Great. Hey, quick heads up that the Imperfect Eating Facebook group is growing and it's so exciting. Every Friday I do a live training in there uh, based on your questions. So we cover different topics like stress eating, emotional eating. And so you're going to want to be a part of this Facebook group if you are saying things like, oh my gosh, I'm still struggling with stress eating or I just love food too much. I can't do a diet because I love it too much and I just eat constantly or, you know, how do I know when enough is enough? I, I eat and then I go overboard. Or, you know, I can do all or I can do nothing. I can be strict or it's well, well, less. But, like, what does balance actually look like? So if these are things that you're struggling with, definitely check out the show links, live trainings every single Friday at 12 p.m. And then you can submit your questions, something you're struggling with. Can't wait to meet you in there. Take care.